0: The Hot Tub Industry History Series is brought to you by Watkins Wellness. This is the Spa Retailer Podcast where we talk retail, business, and all things related to the hot tub industry. I'm your host, Megan Kendrick, owner of Spa Retailer Magazine. So today on the Spa Retailer podcast, we have Mike Dunn, the now retired executive vice president of Watkins Wellness. So Mike, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Megan. And thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
0: You had to retire for us to find time to get you to come on here and talk to us.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we were always pretty busy, but I know we always made time to connect, but uh, it is nice to have a little more time now.
0: Yeah, I mean, be a little more
1: relaxed, I'm not thinking that I have to get to a meeting or right. get to another call or something else. How,
0: cool. How's retirement treating you, Mike? Has it been a year almost?
1: <laughs> I'm going to shock you. It's been two and a half years.
0: No, has it been that long? Oh my gosh! Two and a half
1: <laughs> years at the end of October, and retirement life is treating me incredibly. Well.
0: Great, I'm glad yeah, to.
1: Fully enjoying life and not having stress and being able to get more rest and being able to travel and do some fun things with life. It's a good. It's a good life.
0: Great. I'm glad to hear that. We wanted to have Mike come on the podcast as we've been doing this hot tub history series because Mike has spent most of his career in the hot tub industry, starting even when you were a teenager. That is correct. Yeah. I was uh,
1: 15. I think it was probably had to be the latter part, mid to latter part of 1978 uh, when I got started in the business. My father was in the hot tub business and uh, I would call myself one of those industry brats that just grew up through it. And, um, made a career out of it.
0: At such early days in the hot tub industry when you were working with your dad. What was it like back then? What was the hot tub market category? What did that look like?
1: It was uh, much smaller, obviously. Um, The volume wasn't as much. I think that at that time, we had primarily wooden hot tubs were being sold, transitioning into in-ground fiberglass shells, which were Similar in terms of their installation, the, the tub was set somewhere and then a pad was set somewhere else with the equipment on it. And then portables were, or I would say movables back then, because the products were not self contained at that time. The next step was to just build a cabinet around uh, a fiberglass shell and make it an above ground product and still have a separate you know, equipment pack. And I'd say the business started more so on the West Coast. But also I think there was a cluster of manufacturers down in Florida and a few down in Texas, more in the Sunbelt areas where making fiberglass a little more conducive to that operation. But yeah, so we sold direct to the public in the early days. We manufactured product and took it to home and garden shows and took it to mall shows and weekend type events. My first hot tub I sold was at the Anaheim RV and boat show in, in the parking lot. Here were all these big displays of boats and uh, RVs. And we had this little 10 by 10 booth with a little two-person hot tub in it for fourteen ninety-five retail. That's amazing. Um, yeah. So we just found events to, to get to. And then the dealer business started to develop too. Spas were being sold through dealers. they just weren't as many. So it was a completely yeah. different look and feel back then.
0: Yeah, I was going to say so when you started was that the model for most OEMs then was direct to customers cuz like you said who would who was out there selling hot tubs at retail?
1: I think some manufacturers sold direct to the public as well as developed dealers. Others probably were just finding dealers. So I don't know that every manufacturer started that way. The idea not maybe literally but the idea of the garage shop operation there were a lot of small individuals who got started, who became you know, quite successful in this business doing that small operation and building it up. So retail came with that. whether It was out of your own shop or your own retail stores, but also to develop dealers. And I think manufacturers back then, some of them had their own retail stores so they could make that the model to bring their customer, their prospective dealers out or their existing dealers out to say, this is how it should be done.
0: What does your history look like? So you were, you're helping your dad out in high school. You lived in, grew up in Southern California your whole life.
1: I, my whole life, but I went to junior high and high school in in Orange County and Huntington Beach and next door neighbor there is Costa Mesa. So we had uh, a little shop up in Costa Mesa and my dad was actually in the boat business. So he was buying boat hulls from uh, two or three boat manufacturers. He was selling them advertising and selling them direct to the public and then we, you know, the idea of the term would be is rig them. So we put all the equipment into them and the motors and the, all of the things that went with that, the upholstery and the, all the controls and stuff. And in the late seventies, the energy crisis hit and the boat business started to tank. And yeah. just ironically, my dad leased space to two fellows that were making this little two person hot tub. It was a little, looked like a Victorian bathtub. It was called the Victorian spa. And they got into trouble. They just didn't know what they were doing. And they, I think, they were four, five, six months back on their rent. They were not doing well. They were flailing. So my father took the molds in lieu of rent. (laughs) And next thing you know, he said, "I think we better shift out of the boat business and do something different." And up in Costa Mesa was a fiberglass operation, two brothers, it was called Clark Manufacturing. I don't know if you ever heard of that company or not, Yeah. but uh, it was Dave and Ron Clark, and they were making motorcycle fairings. And we took those molds in there and they started uh, laminating, making shells for us. And then ultimately, I think Ron and Charlie Johnson and Galvin Bartlett got together and said, Hey, we, maybe we should be making hot tubs too. And that's, that was the birth of Sundance Spas.
0: That's amazing. So
1: we go back a, a long time.
0: So who else were the competitors in that time frame? Who else was around oh, then?
1: A few companies that were are still around today. CalSpa was an early player, but yeah. a lot of companies have come and gone. If I started mentioning names, only us old timers would remember. That's kind of remember? the point, yeah. right? Hydra Spa, K2 Hydra Spa okay. was a big shell manufacturer. Grecian was a shell manufacturer. There was a company in Los Angeles called Romanesque. Advanced Spa Designs, which became L.A. Spas,
0: uh, was was
1: around in those early days. There was a company called Wild Water Spas in Los Angeles. Encon was another company.
0: Uh, That's a new one to me.
1: Yeah, Joe and Frank Scataloni were a big manufacturer of hot tubs, and there was a huge retailer in Los Angeles called Spas to Go, Robbie Baylor. And so they Encon and, and Spas to Go built up L.A., Vita Spa was early going back into the into the Florida operation. Mm-hmm. Baja Spas over in Arizona. In Tucson, I, yeah. I, I would probably credit Baja. There was a fellow, the principal there, Bernie Burba. I would probably credit them with making the first acrylic hot tub. Really? I I think so. I would look back on that. Maybe some other people you'll talk to will will try to remember that. But we were making gel coated spas. That's what boats were made out of. And it Mm -hmm. was the same operation. And those shells just didn't hold up the way that they were made. It wasn't made for that environment, ultimately. Mm -hmm. So the acrylic spas were coming in around give or take 1980. And I think Baja was 76 or 7 or 8, 77, 78. They were early and one of the first ones. Yeah. I'm probably missing some companies because so many have come, Yeah, them, but those are some of the ones that that were out there. Beachport was another company right. making acrylic shells and, and building hot tubs. Oh, Polynesian was very early. In fact, the that family, I'm still friends with some folks that are operating. They're actually loosely tied to Viking. Yeah, the Glanic family. And I don't know if David Losey or not that worked over there, but the, they're... Affiliated with Polynesian in the early days, and that was that goes back into the late '70s and early '80s. They were a fairly sizable player yeah. know, back then. So Sundance, of course, and they they started to grow in, in the '80s, like we did, like Hawkeye did.
0: Mm-hmm. But my
1: dad was actually making spas under a different label before making Hawkeye because he was in the boat business. So he just rolled that in and then had some changes in operation and and developed and started making Hawkeye.
0: It's crazy to think back to those early days and yeah, how many people jumped in? That's what, You named a lot of companies and some of those names, even if they don't exist anymore, they still pop up. And those people, like you said, still pop up. And it's just, it's really interesting when you're at a show or in an event and someone walks by and they've got this tale from starting in the seventies and eighties in the hot tub industry.
1: Yeah. Another company that comes to mind, which is, I would say modern day master spa was Mm -hmm. uh, Fort Wayne pools and spas. They were making product back then. They were early in the business too, Uh, ultimately became master, but yet another company and yeah. And there were smaller companies. I can think of some ones up in Oregon and Washington, but they small companies, not enough people would probably remember. But mm-hmm. so, yeah, so it just, it started to grow, started with a handful. And then just really, I think the, the barrier to entry wasn't that high for someone to get in the business.
0: That's so. interesting because I feel like, I I don't know if I would say that today. Not today,
1: for sure. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, the legitimacy today of a manufacturer and all the requirements to in in today's consumer market, Mm -hmm. um, there were a lot of bad reputation on the hot tub business, both in manufacturer level and the retailer level. A fly by night sort of operation. And so I think people looked at hot tub sellers as used car salesmen, the old blue suede shoes car salesmen. <laughs> that it. was the Got reputation. And, and also the product category didn't have the, what we worked 40 plus years to develop a wellness approach. It was the hedonistic Marin County sure. swingers, that's the hot tub life. And so people sometimes would almost look at the hot tub and go, "Ooh, that's not for me." That was a thing we had to overcome in the early days in mm-hmm. a big way. And also, I, I can't even tell you how many days in my life I've stood on a in a mall for ten days, or at a home show or county and state fairs, and have people come up and go, "I don't think it's going to fit in my bathroom. It's not oh. designed for your, to sit to sit in your bathroom." So they the people thought it was an inside. Yeah tub sort of a thing too. So different reputation, way less professionalism, easy to jump in, open a store and people came and went. There was a big cycle of people coming and going. Yeah. I think that would be very hard today to get in.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I totally agree. Investment is huge. Absolutely. So did you leave California then to go to college or did you stick around?
1: So I grew up in Huntington Beach and my personal story, I wanted to go somewhere to school where it was hot and dry. I had a lot of sinus problems. i like, I want to go somewhere there where I can be in a warm climate. So I thought, hey, Arizona State looked really good to me. And until I, as a young person, uh, was starting to look at the cost of tuition and all of that. So mm-hmm. I ended up passing on that. And I went away to school in Bakersfield. I went to Cal- the Cal State system in Bakersfield for two years. Okay. And while I was up there, I came home after my first year and worked for my dad at Hawkeye then at that point in the summertime making hot tubs. And I met the dealer in Bakersfield when he he came in to pick up spas. And so we started chatting. He said, hey, if you want a job when you come up here, let me know. So my sophomore year in college, I worked full time. Sold 225 spas in that year and was able to knock down school because I did all my work in the store. And then still had plenty of time to study and do the things that I did. And after my sophomore year, my dad had started to get into the retail business also. So he asked me if I would be willing to come down and run the retail stores. So I moved after my sophomore year and came back to LA and went to finish my school. It took me four more years because I went at night, but I went to (laughs) Cal Poly Pomona and got my business degree at Cal Poly. But I was working 40 to 50 hours a week and going to school at night, running retail stores and did that for a year and a half. and. Then my dad called me up and said, hey, come out for lunch one day. So I did. And he said, how would you like to come out and work for the factory, be in the VP of sales and marketing and manage our dealer network? So I said, yeah, I can do that. So then I moved out to back out where the factory was in Corona and and did that until I finished school. And that that sort of got us into the late 80s. Yeah. And the, the company grew incredibly fast, too fast, actually. And my, my dad passed away 15 years ago in March. But so I, God rest his soul, and he did. A great job as a pioneer in this business, but I learned some things of what not to do in business by being young and watching that and things that actually I carried into my career. There's just some mistakes that were made that typical businesses make when they're focused on growth and top line sales more so than the bottom line at the end of the day. So that company didn't make it. And in April of 1988, I went to work for Hayward. Okay. So I worked for them for five and a half years. And two two to two and a half of them, I I worked out of their Pomona facility in in Southern California. And then they moved me back to New Jersey. So I was in New Jersey in a sort of product and marketing and brand management position for two, two and a half years and ended up connecting with Watkins and moved from Southern Cal to New Jersey. And then two and a half years later, I was moving from New Jersey to San Diego. So we did a couple (laughs) of cross-country moves in in two and a half years, but came into Watkins in uh, November of 93. And in fact, it was November 15th. So next week will be what would that be 40 years ago that, or 30 Man. years ago that I started to work for him? But yeah, so I, I was 28 and a half years with Watkins and then retired here two and a half
0: years ago. So you've really been in the hot tub industry pretty much your whole life. My whole life you, is what Yeah. I've been. Did you ever envision yourself doing something else? Is this, or did once you had a mind for thinking about a career, was this kind of just what you thought it would be?
1: I think. I, I didn't really think about what I would be doing industry-wise. I knew I wanted to do something in sales and marketing and ultimately get into management. For a long time, having watched my dad own his own company, I thought, oh, I really wanna, I wanna be an entrepreneur and own my own company. I will say, and I'm sure if if he ever listens to this, I hope he appreciates this, but Steve Hammock and myself, we were both entrepreneurial in nature at Watkins. And so even though we were a public company and and we were employees there, I think we we ran the company in an entrepreneurial way. We treated it like it was our own, even though it wasn't. So I think that was the closest thing that I could say to fulfilling that. But there was a point in my life where I realized I think working for someone else is probably a better route for me. My dad was a, he was an entrepreneur at heart and he was up and down two or three times.
0: And I, when I mean down,
1: he was down. Yeah. and And that takes a toll on a family chasing that. Mm-hmm. And I think what I was able to garner from watching that experience and learning things about business, even if they were the wrong things, and I don't mean it to disparage him because I love him and he did an amazing thing to give us the opportunities he did, but yeah, you, know, you learn from watching. And so yeah. I think that helped me grow in a career. But I think when I got on with Hayward and I, I was starting to go down a different path and Hayward was just a much larger company. And I, I learned a lot there, that they, they're they a very professionally run company, it wasn't the hayward today it was still a family business if you will right. and had a really great culture and a high moral character and high you know standards of excellence and and quality and and i learned a lot about marketing and product management and engineering and operations and product design and i just i learned a lot there in my time and i i was pretty grateful for them because I won't go into details, but my family's business was, a, they were a creditor, a fairly sizable creditor oh, to my yeah. family's business. And they actually mm-hmm. hired me within a month after the business closing. So I was always very grateful to Hayward yeah. for giving me that opportunity. And then of course I called on spot OEMs when I worked for Hayward, as well as served up in Oregon and Washington when I was on the West coast doing in-ground in- pool business up there for a couple of years. I did. I have, I will say one person that worked at Hayward who was my uh, direct boss there. I I was in the hot tub side of the business when I worked for Hayward and uh, they were a pool company. So he he gave me some real good advice that I still remember to this day. And that fellow's name is George Metkovich. He's just a, he's retired from Hayward sometime now, but uh, a lot of people in the business would know him, but. Okay. He just told me, Mike Hayward's a pool company, and if you want to grow, you're going to have to learn the pool business. They (laughs) gave me, I'll call it a stretch assignment, and made me a, a district sales manager, not just over hot tubs, but said, we've got a guy leaving in Oregon and Washington, and we want you to take that territory. I lived in California, so for two years, I flew to Oregon and Washington once a month. And I started calling on pool distributors and big pool builders and retailers. Because see, back then, the retail business back then in hot tubs was in-ground shelves. So retailers bought pumps and filters, separate pieces of components right. that I would have to go call on the dealer and then pull that through the distributor. And then that got me to understand the that end of the business and the products. And then I got yeah, promoted into a marketing position and actually managed all the in-ground pool products pumps, filters, and all of the white goods, the filters and the skimmers, and and then all the hot tub products too, because they were like, oh, well, you're the hot tub guy, so you can do right. that you know,
0: you know, on the side.
1: <laughs> so, uh, but it was a fun time because I was working for a company with resources and professionalism and budgeting and costing and pricing mm-hmm. and distribution strategy. And I learned, that's where I really learned a lot and then came into Watkins with some skills that I think I had from the family business, but then also Picked up at Hayward. But yeah. Um, yeah.
0: So what did Watkins look like when you showed up? Did you say was it was in 1993?
1: I showed up at the end of 93. And Watkins was, gosh, I'm going to be careful how I say this. Watkins was a family, it was owned by Masco, but it felt like a small family business. Okay. And it was so already owned
0: by Masco in 93. It
1: was. Yeah. Okay. They, okay. Masco acquired Watkins in 1986. Wow. So yeah, they had owned Watkins for probably seven years, but it was still being run like a family business. And that part was good, but it was a very, this is what I was trying to figure out how to say this. It was a very flat organization. There was a president of the company, which was Jeff Watkins. And then we had two senior leaders, Steve Hammock and Ed McGarry. I don't know if you knew Ed or not, if you ever heard that name or not, but uh, anyway, those two guys, and jeff was i look to be the senior team there and then underneath either ed or steve were probably 13 or 14 department managers so all of those people reported to one or the other so it was very flat if you will Mm -hmm. and i'm not one for saying you got to have lots of layers in management but uh, the communication between those team members was challenging Mm -hmm. in, in the early days from my perspective and I don't know, maybe I, I just, I'm a very open and direct person. Um, I'm not political. I, I don't have a problem telling my colleagues, hey, we're on a team together. So if I'm dropping the ball, tell me. And if you're dropping the ball, I'll tell you and let's just work it out. And it was a little, I'd say it felt to me, and this is my perspective. I don't know if I've ever said this publicly, but it felt a little parental. If you're on the other guy's team and you're ha- happy with the other person, then rather than going to those people, sometimes they would go up t- to mommy who talked to daddy who Mm -hmm. talked to the other Mm -hmm. one. And so the communications went up across and down and I called people out on that. and I don't know whether I offended them or whether it pulled us together, but I just, I didn't go for that. And when I was with Hayward, it was the same way. When I moved to New Jersey, I was the new guy coming in from California's operation. And there were many factions within a company. There's always groups. And I heard from what's the recruitment went on. You should be with us or you should. And my position was, I'm not with any of you. (laughs) I'm here to do my job. And you're wanting to whine and complain about how things are. And I'm just not that way. Yeah, nothing's perfect. And I'm going to put my head down and do my job. And I've, I told a few people, I probably ticked them off, but I can remember telling a few people, if you're not happy here, put up or shut up, either, either do something about it, talk to somebody and try to make it better or leave. Or be quiet and just do your job. Oh. Those are your choices. Mm-hmm. And and so when I came to Watkins, I'd had the same idea of just saying, look, I am who I am. And I, I think probably I was hired, not for that per se, but to, to help bring some change to the organization. I know the same thing in the sales organization. We had, you know again, pretty flat organization. We had a national sales manager and a dozen reps all over the country. Yeah. And so now the company has you know, a VP of sales and a director of sales and three or four area managers, and then all the reps, big tree and, and layers, but it's required. And I can tell you, I, was, I came in as national sales manager for two, two and a half years before I got promoted to VP of sales and marketing and managing 12 or 13 reps and the whole United States, that's a big job in terms of stretch. Sure. So again, it was just a flatter organization and smaller in revenue, of course, still a decent-sized business. I won't mention numbers, but a decent-sized business, but smaller than Hayward for sure. Mm-hmm. But we set out on a course to build something and I think methodically got after it. And then just changes occurred and we did some restructuring. In 1996, we reorganized and Steve Hammock started to build an executive team of vice presidents. Mm-hmm. So we became disciplined with a VP of finance, a VP of engineering, VP of sales and marketing, VP of ops, someone at the director level of customer service. So we had started to form that team and build a, an executive leadership team there where in the past it was really a couple of people at that level and too much for, for them to even handle. And I think it it professionalized the business to some degree and that team stayed together for 20 years. There was a couple little changes here and there, but I honestly think that's what made Watkins. That was the secret sauce of us was building a culture there with people who were like-minded, who were after excellence, who were not perfect by any stretch. I don't want to sound holier than thou, but we had high moral standards and wanted to do the right thing. Even if it costs you something, do the right thing, treat people right, build relationships with customers and be innovative and do something different and not care about what the rest of the industry is doing. Just this is our game plan and let's get after it and let's build this business. And we just had a tenure of a team that These people are still dear friends. All of us, most of us are retired now. But I don't know if you could ever recreate what we had. It was really special.
0: Yeah, that's the that's the thing that I think is just so crazy to me is that you guys were all there for so long and stuck together and you just don't see that in in many companies, right? It is people who have that kind of tenure.
1: And you know what happens with that? Sometimes some people see that and go, wow, that's incredible. That's somewhere I want to be. And other people sometimes can look at long tenure and say, oh, this company doesn't hold people accountable. People just stay here too long. And I think we're the former but I think because of how we treated people, maybe at times we were guilty of being the latter, but in the grand scheme, no. I think we were more about, I don't think the right way to say this, and it's not a negative thing, it's it's actually a positive thing, but when you have a culture like we had, somehow people get drawn to it. You end up, you're not purposely trying to, you want fit in an organization, of course, but you're not trying to say, if they're not like us, we don't want to hire them, but we ended up attracting people who were, they had our DNA, you know, he's called it the Watkins DNA. And sometimes when you make a hire, you may make a mistake and they don't really, when you interview them, it looks like it. And then when they get there, they don't have your DNA. And I found that those people weeded themselves out. They just found that it, this isn't a good fit for me. And we were like, yeah, and it's probably not a good fit for us. And they go somewhere else and thrive and do better. And we've replaced with somebody else and do better. And it just, it built and built. And we ended up having this huge organization of people had the same DNA, even though they were different personalities, a lot of, I'll call it a lot of diversity there. We didn't want clones. We hired people for who they were and don't try to be somebody else. And it just happened. It was really special. It's, yeah. it's hard to describe really how it all unfolded other than we just had a plan and kept going and we kept finding people that fit.
0: When you, so you you started in the industry with wooden hot tubs, the, the in-ground fiberglass, finally going to acrylic What do you see as some of the bigger product developments throughout the years? The things that stick out to you is, oh, that's where the industry changed.
1: I do think the acrylic shell was a big one. By the time I was getting into it, there were Redwood barrel tubs being sold, but they were starting to fade a little bit because the in-ground shell was coming on. But again, it was a fiberglass, gel-coated fiberglass shell, and the fiberglass shell with gel coat inherently had a longevity problem. It would end up, the gel coat could blister and bubble and chemically would create a thing with little black spots. It was called the black plague actually, and it would show up in these shells. And once that's happened, game over. You can't, unless you wanna go in there and sand that down and and re-gel coat it and then cross your fingers that it's gonna stay. So there was a hunt for something better. And and the acrylic shell definitely was a game changer in my view, but that started to raise the barrier to entry because now you you got to unless you're an assembler, you got to buy a vacuum former and you've right. got to buy chopper guns and you got to start making molds and doing. That started to raise the cost of getting into the business. And in my dad's early days, I've meant, I should have mentioned this. It just dawned on me, but back in the day too, there were a lot of assemblers that were sure. quote unquote manufacturers. Like my, when my dad got started with Hawkeye, he was buying shells from Hydra Spa. He was buying shells from a company called Beachport, and he was buying shells from CalSpa okay. way back, the yeah. previous owner of CalSpa. And so we bought those shells, and then we jetted them the way we wanted to and put the equipment in the way. So we competed against those companies that were actually making their own portable spas, and we were using their shells, but our spas looked different. Our cabinet looked different and all of that. Yeah. Getting into the, the acrylic game, I think, was a game changer for the industry for sure. I think that the next you know thing would be the self-contained nature of having the equipment under the cabinet. Yeah, And it sounds so silly today because they're all made that way. But I graduated from high school in January of my senior year. And for nine months before I went away to college, I ran the spa shop for a plant for my dad. And I can still remember the day that we put that equipment under there. And we were just high-fiving each other. We figured out a way to fit all that stuff under there. And we weren't the first. There were people doing it, but not a lot. But we said, we got to find a way to make these things self-contained. And when we figured out how to stretch that out and and design the shell and build a platform and put all the equipment under there, and in those days, the filters weren't topside, they were underneath too. Most people use this little tiny Hayward filter, it was a little 25 square foot filter, and you had to put ball valves on it in order to, to clean the filter because it was under the level of the water. And that was a huge change for the hot tub business. Yeah. Oh, one other brand that comes to mind was Jericho. I don't know if I mentioned them or not. Oh. They were a huge player, huge player. Some of the people that you know, maybe still around, they certainly would remember them back in the 80s. They were a, a very big okay. uh, acrylic manufacturer and built a quality product. But they had problems with their shells, as did many. Even this acrylic change was something you had to know what you were doing because sure. in the early days they, they had what was called delamination. So if you didn't get that glass on there, then you'd get bubbles and blisters and shells and things like that. So acrylic was a winner, but you had to perfect how to make that. Sure. But I think the the acrylic shell, going self-contained was a huge thing. The controls in, in my early days, they were all air controls. They mm-hmm. were push button, like when how you turn on a, a garbage disposal now, and you have that little button that, that turns yep. on your garbage disposal yep. that's actually an air... Pr- that's what controlled oh. hot tubs. My grand grandparents control- had a
0: hot tub, and when we went over there, it was like a built-in thing, and we pushed yeah. those buttons. All, all my growing up, that's what that's what it was. That,
1: that's how they were. So the, the controls were in, down in the box. You basically had contactors and switching, and then those air switches that moved things on contactors to turn this on or turn that off and no electricity up near the water. So that was a safety thing. Sure. And uh, that that was a thing that was there. And I think the advent of going to electronic control started to up the mm. look and feel of hot tubs, bringing on the low voltage controllers that went up on top was a big milestone for companies and it forced innovation. And, yeah. Uh, and that was an issue too, because back in the day, UL, I would say UL, 1563 was a big thing for the hot tub business in the 80s because people were making spas that were not UL approved, mm. and they were probably safe, but they weren't UL. So companies that had UL approval, that was a huge market. Hey, we're UL approved, and those guys aren't. that was a safety thing. Yeah. Even though the people that weren't UL, they said we use all UL approved components. That yeah. was their selling message.
0: Sure. Yeah, why not? Um,
1: but it forced people to get UL. And that sort of became a standard. And now I don't even think it gets talked about, but we know Mm -hmm. the products. There were some products that were made that weren't maybe as safe as they should be. So I think that that was a big thing. And then they just, I'll start talking about feature proliferation then. And I don't know if some of this was good for the industry or not. And by the way, the electronic controls, albeit neat and cool, and we'd have to have them today. Yeah. Back in the day, those simple air switches and simple contactors we had, yeah. they were way more reliable than circuit boards and all of the stuff. That in, you see that in cars and that in your washers mm-hmm. and dryers and all of that kind oh, of totally. stuff. And the same with hot tubs. I don't think people would want to buy a hot tub today with an air switch, a little plunger type thing. <laughs> yeah, um, probably not. Compared to what's out there. Yeah. Um, but then the advent of jetting, more and more jets and the moving jet. I'll I'll credit the first moving jet debatable, but Hot Spring came out with a moto massage that moved up and down. But also during that time, Hydro Air was a supplier of jets and fittings, and they, had, they were able to get the patent, license the patent from a fellow who made a, a jet called the Microsage jet. Okay. And so that Microsage was a spinner jet. And, and up until then, every jet was either just an eyeball that you could move around or right. some of the early designs on jets you could take the nozzle and turn it and adjust it which was a big you know thing for the the jet suppliers But that spinner jet changed the nature of selling hot tubs too. And Watkins Moto, I think those, I don't know who, probably people would debate which one came first, but it doesn't matter. They both came along. But then that forced, I was at Hayward at that time and I was selling jets. I worked for them selling jets to OEMs and Hydraware now had something that we didn't have and it was hard to compete against that. So we had to, it forced us to innovate and we, I helped with myself and and another fellow in the engineering group worked on a project and we developed a rotating jet for Hayward in order to, because our customers, some of our customers dropped us and went to them because they said, Hey, we got to have that because everybody else has it but if you have it, then we'll come back to you. So that's how the business works and mm-hmm. innovation forces innovation. And I think all that for hydro massage and all of that stuff is good. Now there's bazillions of jets and various yeah. manufacturers yeah. and rotaries and adjustables and different ways to see it. So that was big. I think a lot more on the top side, filtration was a big change too, because people had to redesign their shells to, yeah. it, it just wasn't consumer friendly to have to get a screwdriver and take the door off and then turn two ball valves and things. And then when you do a bunch of water splashes, any it just that's just how right. it was in the early days and nobody knew any better, making it a little easier, more consumer friendly for people to be able to, you know, yeah. maintain their spas and pull the filters out. That-
0: people aren't good at, at- cleaning their filters as it is. I can't imagine having to like unscrew things. <laughs> Those filters never got changed.
1: <laughs> it, it was, and then what happened was you'd have a service call because my heater's not working. Yeah, and the, readers, the same Your today, heater's right? not working is the flow switch won't open. And the reason the flow switch won't open is because your filter's dirty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and believe it or not, even to this day, if you called... Watkins or Jacuzzi or Master or any bullfrog, they probably, all their customer service people say, we get calls all the time. My heater's not working. Yeah, Remove your filter for just a second, would you? Oh, the heater's working now. It's filters.
0: (laughs) Yes. It's like the first, it's the first thing that seems to go wrong. Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So I think some of those things made the product more appealing to consumers. I, I think Watkins' philosophy and my own was maybe that sort of went a little too far with some of the fancy nature of having 80 or a hundred jets in a hot tub yeah. and all these electronic controllers. And then lighting came and then LED lighting came.
0: Yeah. I, I think there, there were TVs and hot tubs too, man. Oh,
1: there was TVs. And I think that sort of was short lived. Our position was, and we ended up offering one, but it was a, a, a retrofit type. You can add it on if you want to, but the whole idea of a hot tub is to disconnect. Why, why do you need to get in there and watch TV? One one big change that that I think we're proud of from my Watkins days is the synthetic cabinet. And that was a big game changer too. And I think we came out with our first cabinet in 1995 was our first entree with a synthetic cabinet. And now you almost can't find a hot tub without wood on it. And, and installation was another thing. Fully foaming hot tubs and improving the installation uh, was a big game changer. The hard cover putting a better, in my day, and we started, we put on top of the water just a little quarter inch thermal blanket, just a little teeny right. blanket that sat on the water. And then we put a soft cover over the top that just was a drawstring to keep dirt and debris out. Mm-hmm. So that that little thermal blanket, it worked okay, but it wasn't as good as what today, these three and a half to four inch thick covers that are on top. So the insulation and the covers were big things too, because that made the energy cost less. And then we some people we started testing, like our spas only run so much energy. And back in the day, I think spas could toss people between 50 and and $100 a month because they were just poorly in the early days we made hot tubs with just a teeny bit of foam on the back of the shell plumbed it up and put the cabinet on and we sold it that way and a lot of it was in the west coast so it wasn't sitting in you know the east where weather came but the spas were not very energy efficient and then people would spend 50 to 100 bucks a month for electricity
0: oh man can you imagine uh, can you imagine what that would be today in electricity oh yeah (laughs) oh yeah
1: And where I came from in San Diego, my gosh, the the cost of electricity—that might be one of the highest costs of electricity in the country. So yeah, making things energy efficient. The the circ pump was another thing. Uh, some of these things I'm not. Trying to say because i'm biased because i was with watkins but watkins was an innovator they brought i i could probably name five six seven things that watkins brought to the table that became yep. industry standard but the circ pump it was an important one for that energy thing too because yeah. now you're running a 40 watt like a light bulb every day as opposed to your jet pumps turning on and off all the time not to mention that the, the pumps last longer but they don't draw as much electricity so that became industry standard so a lot of things just changed that, that made the product more reliable, more efficient, and more marketable, of course. And then you can debate the more marketable if some people have gone over the top. But if they choose to compete that way, God bless them. Let them, <laughs> let them do what they want. That, that's totally fine. So make makes it interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when I started in the industry, it was I started in 2008.
1: Perfect time to join the industry. Oh gosh,
0: tell me about it. Right, (laughs) people talk about the heyday of the industry, and I'm like, when was that?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was probably tough if you were trying to sell advertising in 2008 and 09 was probably a tough. Fortunately,
0: I wasn't. That wasn't my job at that time. (laughs) Fortunately, yeah, not that would not have been not was not fun. But that was in the middle of the whole Virginia Graham Baker kerfuffle. Mm. That was. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. I really. At the time, obviously, I didn't really fully understand the impact of that because I didn't know anything about the hot tub industry, but that too was, that was a big, bad timing and a big deal for hot tubs to get swept up in all of that.
1: Yes, it was. Bringing back some memories I've tried to forget. Just kidding. (laughs) I have to attribute this quote to, to Steve Hammock, but We were the dolphin caught in the tuna net, if you will. The tuna net, so to speak, was the in-ground pool business, both residential and more so commercial. And I do think that the the VGB Act probably made sense on the pool side. There were a lot of commercial pools, you name it, where a commercial pool is installed anywhere where kids can swim and whatnot. That was a risk actually, and probably needed to happen. I say in retrospect, at the time, we always grumble about regulation. But the hot tub business wasn't the same. And, and we had a, a standard with UL 1563 and we had covers that were worked right. And we had separation between our filters and, and we'd never had drownings in hot tubs. The, the portable hot tub. Now I would still say the commercial hot tubs, they also, you go to a hotel, they too were probably susceptible to VGB. Yeah. And, yep. and all of that was appropriate, but the portable hot tub business, we had no business being caught up in that. And, and I would say that had to have cost component suppliers, the, the people that injection mold, those fittings, mm-hmm. millions of dollars to change. It cost us, if you add up all the manufacturers to millions, I'm just gonna say millions and millions of dollars were put on the hot tub business unnecessarily, quite frankly. At a time
0: where, you know, sales were Sales, sales were, low. were down
1: yeah. 65% as an industry in 08, 09. So yeah, it was not a great time And, and of course cost us all a lot of money and distraction when we were trying to keep the businesses moving the best that we could. And that, I don't know if we should get into that, but that caused a bunch of challenges for the trade associations and things like that. People that were on the different associations, boards and things, there was pool and there was manufacturers and there was hot tub, all of that stuff through the trade association. But that sort of burst, that was a last straw, if you will, for some an individual who, mm-hmm. who came to us at Watkins and said, would you like to help start this thing? And we did. And that was the birth of the IHTA. Right. And I have no hard feelings. Again, go looking back at the previous association leadership and all that, they should have done better for us, but they didn't. And it is what it is. But it ended up turning into some, sometimes bad things create something that in the long run, I think the IHTA has been terrific for the industry. But it was birthed out of adversity, out of something that said enough is enough. And we're not, we're we're more than a pool business. We're pools and hot tubs. And we didn't feel hot tubs had a seat at the table the way it should be. Mm -hmm. And that came to light. And we we said, we're in. And we stayed in the other association too, but we helped support this other one. And long-term, this other one sort of became the one for the whole industry is back with the big association. That is not. And there's some bright people trying to keep things moving there for the industry. But those were some tough days too, because then it was, there was political battles going on between why are you doing this and the different associations and all that. And the VGB was the main reason okay. just it was enough already.
0: Yeah. And it's really hard to imagine anything like that catching the hot tub industry by surprise at this point, because it's, because now it, it, through the IHTA, they have all of those stop gaps in place to make sure yeah. that everything is being watched. And
1: yeah, have- we Watkins brought that to the IHTA because our parent company had Resources and, and monitoring because they monitor other industries. And so mm-hmm. we we reached out to them and said, We can monitor your industry. And there, there are some people that work behind the scenes in this business that most people don't even know that oh, I know. really watch the regulatory thing. And Nathan at Master Spas, he needs a shout out for what he does over all this time. Mike McCaig, who worked mm-hmm. at Watkins, same thing. JT. Yeah. Who I think is a beachcomber right now, but yes. he was with Coast at one time. Yeah, and and honestly, the of all of them, I would say Cindy McGray at Spa Manufacturers. She, I think, she would sit on her couch probably and read hundreds and hundreds of alerts, finding the one that says we better address this and manage this group and oversaw this group of the people that I mentioned and then company engineers and other folks. Yeah. It would be, I would be hard pressed to say that something's going to get blown. A fastball is going to get blown by the IHTA at this point. And all that came because of VGB. A bad thing created something that was long-term good for the industry, but a challenge to build, but over time turned into something that's, that's good.
0: Yeah. And so needed. And it's, I feel like everyone should sit in an IHTA meeting at some point and hear all the things that are discussed because it will blow your mind. All of the details that go into all of this stuff and all these workings behind the scenes that you don't realize it until it impacts you personally. And so it's just, yeah, I feel like any, everybody in the industry should sit in those meetings at least once just to get an idea of what is happening behind the scenes to keep our industry rolling at the pace that we want it to.
1: You mentioned that when it affects you, and I—I I don't know if it's okay for me to make a shameless plug for the IHTA and and, and the PHTA, <laughs> but not enough dealers or members. And I, when I was retiring, I was involved in putting together a campaign to help put something together so that the IHTA could benefit a little more by getting their members and getting hot tub dealers to, to become members Mm -hmm. for, I don't know, at the time, I don't know what it is now. It was around $600 a year or something like that. But if, if a thousand dealers would join you have $600,000, you really have a, a pool to work with to do the right things to help the industry. And it's just my general impression and experience that sometimes dealers go, yeah, I don't really see what it does for me until they've got someone saying, oh, you should have had a bonding grid in your concrete patio. So now that person has to jackhammer their concrete out to make a new patio. And now they lost their hot tub sale. Or, hey, we have locking covers, so we don't need fences, but they got some regulatory guy saying, hey, you got to put a fence around this. And so we're the first person they call, even though they're not a member, but they're the ones that say, I don't need it. And I think it's a very small investment, $50 a month, give or take, I don't know what it costs to to be part of helping this group have the resources to do what they need to Mm -hmm. do to help the industry. I, I probably will just continue forever to sing that praise and say, dealers should join IHTA, period to help their association have the resources to do what they need to protect them. Cause that's what they're trying to do. Cause that's who you call when, when you're in trouble. Wrong. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thanks for letting me share that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still passionate about it because I think the industry needs that.
0: Yeah. you know. you spent a, a lot of years working with the IHTA and working yes, to I those do. ends. So you were still at Walkins in part of the pandemic craze and as someone who has been in the industry since i will say close to the beginning what did that feel like to you as someone who's been in the industry for so long was it like a culmination of all of your hard work or did it feel like a disaster neither
1: <laughs> i'm going to use i'm going to use words that younger people used it crazy insane yeah. it was just hard to even wrap your brain around what it was like yeah yes i don't know if i want to use the word disaster i think steve and i for sure had to think about we had to, we were in California. Okay. Not every state had this requirement. We had to shut our factories down. We had a factory in Mexico had to shut down. Yeah. So the thought of actually shutting a manufacturing plant down and then wondering when are we actually going to be able to reopen again? Yeah. That was hard to get, to figure out what we're going to do in that moment. And I think both of us felt that We probably were able to open sooner than we ever, if you would look back on it, do you think we'd have been able to reopen by that time? We both would have said, no way. Right. So a little bit of effort put forth to be able to figure out how to get back in business. So that's one thing. But then two, the explosion of demand, I don't think we could have seen coming. It could have gone either way we right. could have said oh my gosh this we're out of business and you know 50% of the dealers in America are going to go out because our no one's going to be buying hot tubs and what's going to happen this could be worse than 2008 or 09 that's mm-hmm. one thought and for 6 weeks or so we were in the sort of 6 8 weeks you're in the doldrums just sitting there in a ship and no wind but then all of a sudden It just turned on and what a lucky break for us. So I don't want to say we capitalized off the pandemic and all these other people got hurt and we don't care. All these businesses that got hurt by pandemic, man, I feel for them. Mm -hmm. But thank God we weren't in the travel industry or the hospitality industry. Some of the things that the entertainment industry, we were something that affected the home and people were locked down in homes, shuttering in place. And all of a sudden demand grew. And I can tell you that in all my years of this business, if you would have said, what's your wildest dream for demand, COVID far exceeded even what we could have, us that have been in a long time, if the industry ever got to this size, wow, it would be just mind blow us. Yeah, COVID just ran away from that. So that's an interesting dynamic that occurred. But I don't know if I could say it's a culmination of all our hard work. I think some of it was we had been trying to get people to think that a hot tub needs to be part of your daily life and it's a wellness thing. And I think a lot of people were bought into that or they wouldn't have bought hot tubs during that period. I do believe, and now the industry is experiencing it, and I said it back then that we're probably pulling people in from the future because they have nowhere to go and they can't go to Disneyland and they can't go to Europe and they can't go to... I don't know, Yellowstone, they can't do what they normally do. So we've got money set aside. Let's do this now. We were going to do that three years from now. So there's a little correction that has to occur. It's occurring. If you're talking to people, I'm sure you know that. Yeah. But it took off. And luckily for us and also the retail side, I think retailers really benefited incredibly from a tsunami. And I don't mean it like tsunamis can have a very bad connotation, right? but this was a big wave that came through and many people got on their board and wrote it really well Mm -hmm. and managed their business as well and made a lot of money, but also you can't expect that to last forever. So what it created was managing a dip Trying not to downsize that was a hard thing. You just don't want to let people go. Furloughs took place in some cases instead of letting people go so we could bring people back. And then when it turned on, uh, just all out pandemonium in terms of demand. I yeah. when when Covid started in what March of twenty, and I retired in april of twenty one. And one thing that I feel like I, I didn't want to like abandon ship, leave people hanging, but I had a plan before COVID even came up. I had given Steve my notice back in like October of 19. Yeah, He said, I'm going to leave in April of 21. One thing I worked on with the team there was we ended up developing an allocation system so that we could fairly distribute products to dealers and in a sense say, this is what you're going to get for the year and you can plan on it rather than wondering what am I going to get? When am I going to get it? Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, the first year of that from March, April of 20 till sometime into 2021, it was us. Most of my time was spent with a team of people looking at all the orders and figuring out how do we fairly distribute these products and give some to this and the larger guys need more and the smaller guys can't be left apart. And some people don't buy full truckloads. So you got this dealer married up with that dealer and figuring all that out. It was quite a challenge to figure that out because we stopped taking orders. And when we opened up our factories for orders, I shouldn't, I can't say the numbers, but We literally got tens of thousands of units in one day.
0: Oh, my goodness. Come across
1: our port. We had an order portal, and that's how people had to order. And all of a sudden, you went from having, okay, we erased our backlog and told everybody start over, and this flood comes in. Now you're like, what are we going to do with that? We would have dreamed to have orders like that in normal operations, but now it's overwhelming. COVID, I don't, that was a good thing. I don't want to call it a disaster. But it was a disaster for obviously the country and deaths and businesses and all the stuff that came with that and (laughs) infighting and everything. COVID was just a shame. But it so it really allowed a lot of people to become very successful, actually. But I will say also, and I hope, you know, I don't want to put dealers down, but I I told a lot of dealers along the way don't forget how to sell and don't forget how to market because. You know, a lot of people stopped advertising and rightfully show. So when you only can sell so many spas and you're killing it as it is a waste of money to throw advertising in in there. So I would agree they did the right things. But when things start to change, watch for those signals Mm -hmm. and you got to start marketing again. And salespeople don't forget how to sell and really sell because you know what the sales approach was during COVID. We've got a truckload coming and there's three left on it. And I got 20 people that want it. Do you want it or don't you? Yep. Okay, I'll take it. I don't want to wait a year. I'll take it. And so that's not salesmanship. That's taking orders. Now, ma- what salesmanship is then managing all those lead times that came with it. We were 52 right. weeks out on lead time at Watkins. People were just, they just didn't understand that. How come I have to wait so long? And where's my hot tub? That's where the salesmanship came in. Don't forget where we were back in 2019. And I think we're getting back to 2019 levels. And in some cases, maybe below 2019 mm-hmm. levels. Yeah. So now- We're back to doing what we used to do and so uh, long i'm giving you a long answer here sorry if i'm rambling but i don't know some of it was our hard work that had people want to have it but can we really take credit for this big wave that came through too we 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 just got in the midst of what i would call a black swan event for the world yeah it, it was a white swan event for the hot tub business and yeah how many industries could say that very few we got lucky Blessed, how whatever you want to call it, because we could have been done for two years of just, oh my gosh, the industry's down eighty percent for a couple of years, and that thought ran through our minds for sure. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it turned, and watch out.
0: No, so- I know. For a few weeks there, I think they, we all of us thought we were out of business. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was what was that was what the writing was on the wall for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But what kind of calls are you taking from dealers in that time? <laughs> I've
1: jokingly said, even to some dealer friends along the way who had called me along the way, I was a therapist for a good year. Yep. I need hot tubs. That, that's, I, I can, my wife would tell you, I, I've never He worked way more from home than I. When COVID hit, she thought, I'm not going to be doing it. What am I going to be doing? There's nothing to do. And it turned. And I, I spent so much time on the phone with dealers every day, six, seven calls, Saturdays and Sundays, because mm-hmm. during the week I was busy too. And dealers just needed to talk to somebody to get their fears handled that, can I get some hot tubs? When am I going to get hot tubs? What's going on out there? How are you guys doing? And so I just, I don't want to say talk people off the ledge, but it was just this idea of making people recognize what's going on. And the deeper we went into COVID and the more business we had, the more stressed dealers became. And because they wanted to fill all that demand, And I don't fault them for that. I get it. If I was if I was on their side, I know what they're trying to do. But in some cases, I had to tell people, it's the it was FOMO. It was this fear of missing out. And I'll just I'm making up numbers, but if a dealer sold three hundred spas a year, all of a sudden they were selling six hundred, and they were calling me because they couldn't get six hundred and fifteen or six hundred and fifty. And I had to say, in your wildest dreams, did you think you'd be doing no? Okay, so you're so stressed over losing the 25 or 50 that you're not recognizing that you're up 100 percent. And so I think that was a lot of what I did during that time. And it just trying to give people perspective and remind them that you may not get everything. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, our dealers, we had to say, if you need to get another product line, if they can give it to you and you can supplement with that. We took the position and said, go ahead and do it. We don't like it, but if I can only give you 300 and you think you can do 400 and get a hundred from somebody else and they're willing to give them to you, it's in your best interest to do what you need to do. Just when we can supply you everything we can, we would expect you not to carry that product anymore. And, and we just, I think didn't affect our relationship. We said, do what you have to do because right. that's your opportunity. Who am I to say what you should or shouldn't do in that moment? It's just hard because it's frustrating because I want to give you the 400 and we can't, but yeah, it was a, b- a lot of fear, I think of, I I can't get enough. And, and again, I don't fault people for that. They're trying to maximize their opportunity, but that was stressful. Very difficult time to try to just help people get that perspective of, and a lot of times when I hung up, people were like, I feel so much better. You're right. We are doing well. I'm not trying to hammer you, but it was a barrage of we need hot tubs. I'm like, do you think we're trying to tell for, because we like it?" it? It was just that, but Everyone was under stress, so we get it. And yeah, I totally understood it. So yeah. that was what my life was like. And then trying to figure out how to get this allocation done. And then I knew I had a plan that I was going to be retiring. And so onboarding the person that replaced me, that now is the president, who I know you probably interviewed recently and talked with VJ. Yeah. So a lot of things going on in that period of time.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting you said that you were a therapist because I felt a lot. I felt the same. When we would call people to talk to them about, for stories. it didn't matter what the topic was. You had to talk through the entire timeline. And they, it was like, they were just, they needed to get it off their chest, everything that they had been through and were going through and were experiencing because it was such a, it was just so intense and yeah. and you stressful want to, you want
1: to hear a, a sort of a, a funny not funny like ironic because covid is not what happened with people dying is not funny but the the irony of how big we thought it was and what it turned into be watkins was supposed to take an incentive trip in in uh, march yes uh, or february of of 2020 And I had myself and a few others were monitoring whether we should go or not. And Mm every day CDC was like, these countries are green and all of our connection points because we took people from all over the world for four or five hubs were green. And as long as it's green, we feel like we can go. And February 7th, we were supposed to leave, I think on the 11th. And Uh we were still like, we're going. And February 7th, like the dominant, like five airlines said, we're closing down these hubs and all of that. And that was the day where we said, Okay, we can't go. Yeah, we can't take three, four hundred people there, and then we were going to Cambodia and Vietnam, and we mm-hmm. can't get over there. And what if we can't get back? It was very oh. challenging because we all wanted to go, but this is the irony of it. On February seventh of twenty twenty, at the time we did it, we were watching the the cases of COVID in the world. You know mean? There were twenty five thousand cases in the world, <laughs> and we're like, we can't go. We thought, how could we ever think the number could have gotten so astronomical? But even at that level, we were thinking, wow, 25,000, that's so many. Yeah. There's nothing.
0: Oh, yeah. But
1: at the time, we didn't know.
0: That's I remember people talking about that, about you guys having to cancel that trip. And oh, my goodness, it was just such a big deal. And can you imagine having to do that at the last minute? And oh, yeah, there were a lot of stories like that where it was like things that were supposed to happen or were happening and then just shut down.
1: (laughs) Exactly. It was very challenging. It was really tough. You have to do the right thing. And our customers, I believe our customers trusted our judgment. And up until then, they were nervous, but I think they said, if you guys say it's okay, then we're going to go with you. And we can't betray that if we got yeah. them over there and couldn't get them back. And even back in that day, part of our consideration was what if we can't get them back? And two, If you got a fever of any type, whether you had COVID or not, mm-hmm. if you remember in those days, yeah. you were quarantined for two weeks. Whether even if you didn't I don't have COVID, I just have a fever because I got a little th- yeah, you're stuck for two weeks. We can't do and so yeah. that was just a big problem. But no,
0: and there are those know. stories of people who got trapped on their vacations, like the country closed, they couldn't get back in and they just were stuck infinite like spending infinite money to stay yeah. Yeah. not at their home during COVID. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> Yeah, for sure.
0: So what do you see now that you're retired, you stepped away from the industry? What do you see for the future of the industry? What do you think the hot tub industry needs to do next to reach that next level of growth?
1: I think the industry needs to continue to focus on wellness for sure and get messages out. Personally, I think from manufacturers more so than from the trade association, I don't think that's the, never thought it was the association's job to try to get that message out, but yeah. we need to continue to position and promote wellness and, and the value of daily use of a hot tub and making it a, a necessity in someone's home rather than a luxury. And yeah. we're making, certainly we've made a lot of progress on that, but I think that that needs to continue. I will tell you that I'm personally, and I bought Steve up a lot because it was just, he and I did a lot of stuff together and we thought the same way, but I'm very concerned about the price of hot tubs today. I I, First of all, some of it is something no one can control and it's inflation. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm out of the industry now, but when I talk to people about hot tubs and oh my God, they're so expensive. I say, I think, this is a generalization for me, but I think hot tubs have gone up 25 to 30% in the last three years. And it's been, much of it has been material cost inflation. And although freight's coming down now during COVID, the cost of of logistics and freight was just astronomical, but all that's baked into the pricing now. And I won't mention dealers or models or anything, but I'm aware of hot tubs that used to sell for 15, $16,000. And that was the upper limit there are now 23 000 to 25,000 and we're getting it. Yeah. I don't know what that's going to do for unit volume over time. Yeah. So even the entry level products are probably up around five grand instead of three grand. Mm-hmm. So I'm a little bit concerned about the future and figuring out a way to hit a sort of affordability for consumers. How do we price ourselves out of the market? But I think this is true in other categories. Yeah, Electronics, maybe televisions and things like that. You still get a good deal on, you get a big 65 inch TV probably for a thousand bucks or even less cars. I read an article in in Wall Street a couple months ago that showed, here's the five cars that are under $20,000 and most of them people wouldn't want to buy. And that's all there is. Even the drive towards electric vehicles. These vehicles are so expensive. Mm -hmm. And even now, if you're tracking that the big three are they're starting to back off their production on these things and incentives have gone just a a week ago i read an article that showed incentives were like two percent of the cost of the now they're up to ten percent so because of cost because we're Mm -hmm. trying to do all these things with the product with all these features and everything and the cost drives up so i think that has to be considered and and i think ultimately and this is more speaking through a manufacturer's eyes, and of course, retail dealerships don't like this, but to continue to be, I'll call it omni-channel, products need to be where consumers want to buy them. Mm-hmm. And dealerships are definitely one of them, but online is going to be part of it, and Consumer direct's going to be part of it. And you just have to be open to letting people buy products the way that they want to buy them. Look at Tesla. Back in the day, they weren't even making money. Even I said, gosh, I don't know if these guys will make it. They're not making money. But they disrupted an an industry of car dealerships. And this is how the business works. And this is how they want it to stay that way. And how many people now are buying those vehicles differently. I don't know what that looks like. And I'm not suggesting manufacturers have to sell direct to consumers. And if they do, they better include their dealers in the profit because they need dealers need to be part of that for service and fulfillment. But it's a two-way street. Manufacturers need dealers as much as dealers need manufacturers at this point, in my view, the right partnerships. But I think the business needs to be open to change and, and the consumer change and the next generation. I buy things direct now too, but a lot of people, I'm a boomer, I'm for sure. I'm on the cusp of the low end of the boomer, but I'm a boomer and I'm not going to get labeled like some boomers because I probably, my behavior is different. I'm probably more of a younger type of a consumer, but a lot of people are afraid to do things the way, but young people today, man, they have this telephone and they have websites and they buy things on the spot. And if you're not doing what they want, you're just not in the consideration set. Mm -hmm. So... Again, I'm not trying to say everyone has to just change the nature and dealers don't exist anymore, but I think the business just has to recognize that consumerism is going to change and you can't stop progress. So you, you got to be open to how people want to do business. I think that's important and and make these products, make sure these products are affordable.
0: Yeah, I think I think the pandemic kind of catapulted some of those consumer changes and made our industry adjust to them a little faster than we maybe would have otherwise. Like I agree. It was probably a pain at the time for a lot of us, but in the end, probably very helpful to have those that infrastructure in place going forward. Yeah.
1: The other thing that I think needs to happen is the industry at large, whether it's manufacturers, distributors, or dealers, needs to continue to attract the next generation of talent. I use this phrase a lot when I'm talking to friends because in in the industry, and a lot of us have retired, and even dealers and other people at other manufacturers and people that I knew from Hayward and distribution, and we're not old. I'm 60, so we're not old, but we've aged out is the phrase that I use. This generation that was in this business for 20, 30, 40 years, we did our time, paid our dues helped do what we did. And we've all said, okay, now we want to go enjoy what we worked for. And we're stepping away. And we've aged out is the term. And who's coming behind us? And not just employees. Who are the leaders, not only of companies, but who are the industry leaders? When I think of guys and gals like Cindy and Bob Lauder and myself, and I'll go back to Steve Hammock, there's so many people that I could name in the hot tub business. We all served on the hot tub councils, and when it was part of the APSP before it was IHTA, and and on different committees and things like that. But we had an active interest in making sure that the industry grew in addition to our own companies. Mm-hmm. And I suppose some of those people are out there, so I don't want to suggest they're not. But I think long term, we got to keep bringing people into this business and have people recognize that the hot tub business is a serious business. It's not some Fad. That was another thing when in the 80s everyone thought, oh, the hot tub business—it's just a fad. The 10 years from now, this thing will be over. And we fought that too. I can remember that as a conversation all the time. But we need to make sure people say, I could have a career in the hot tub business, and actually get with a professional company, grow, have an amazing career, and retire from it. My wife says this all the time because people that we know—they they just don't look at hot tubs like we do, and they go, how could your husband retire from the hot tub business at 58? Like. It's because it's a real business. Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize We just thought these hot tubs were just a little thing on the side. No, it's a big business. And we need to be able to help people understand that and draw them into the industry and say, I want to be part of that." And I think that's something the hot tub business for the future needs to work on is keep recruiting in these people and giving them chances to get involved and serve and make an impact and help lead whatever their changes. Our generation did what we did because of the changes that were occurring. It's going to be something totally different in the future, but let's get those brilliant minds and and Mm -hmm. people who want to help become those people that take it, take the baton and run with it from us who I look at my family I, 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 and my dad and, and others that were they were pioneers yeah in this business but now it's something real who's going to take it to the next level and maybe they'll do it differently than we did it and I'm okay with that and maybe they'll do it better than us and I'm okay with that too I don't have any axe to grind if someone can do it better than I did it great take yeah. it to the next level because we're invested our whole lives were in this business and it was successful and it was good to us and I wanted to do well Let's just make sure we can get that talent into the industry over time.
0: Yeah, we know we, we've been talking about it a lot in the magazine is just this kind of generational shift that we're seeing, right? Mm-hmm. Because people like you and Steve and Bob and even dealers have are retiring, they're selling their businesses, they're moving on. And yeah, there is this, the next generation is going to have to step into those roles now. Now is the time and it's happening. And so they can't, been... they
1: can't be too busy. This is the thing. I'm too busy to do that for the industry. I have my Mm -hmm. job to do. We were busy too, overwhelmed with the jobs that we had building a company, but you got to find time to also give back and and serve the community, if you will, as a leader. And and that's a big ask for anyone that might be listening that's thinking about that, or you don't understand how busy my job is. Yeah, I do actually understand (laughs) how busy your job could be and then some, but finding that those people that are willing to say, I'm going to make the effort and actually when I make the effort, be all in versus just, I sit on a committee, but I don't really do anything that I'm okay. actually making, make an impact and leave a legacy in the industry. Who, who's going to do that over the next 20 or 30 years?
0: So do you remember your first hot tub sale? I do. So, all right. Do you, the product, the customer, what details do you remember? I, I do don't remember? remember the
1: name of the customer because it was 42 or 43 years ago, but I I was 15 And we went to the Anaheim boat and RV show at the Big A in Anaheim, out in the parking lot, and opened at 10 on a Saturday. And my dad and I went and opened up the booth, and then he had to go do something for a couple hours. He had to run and take care of some things. And he said, just stay here and talk to people and take names, and I'll be back at noon. And so he left. And in that two hours, I sold the hot tub. And it was just a little two-person Victorian hot tub with a little skid pack on the side. And the retail price was 1495. All right. uh, For a hot tub. And I got a fifty dollar deposit and wrote a contract. And when he came back, he goes, Did anybody come by? And I go, Yeah. And he go and he said, Was it very busy? I said, Not super busy. I said, But I sold one. And uh, I don't (laughs) want to use the word that he used, but he said, You're Essing me, aren't you? And I said no. And I pulled out a contract (laughs) and his jaw dropped. And that was the beginning of my retail sales career before I got into the the manufacturing side of things.
0: I feel like so so many of these uh, stories, when I ask these people, when I ask people that question, it's accidental sales. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or it's just I was there and it happened.
1: (laughs) I sold retail up until my early to mid twenties. Cause we, cause I sold it with him and then with the dealer of Bakersfield and then our own stores before I really got going with the factory, probably five, five, six years later. But um, it, it was actually, I always felt I had an advantage being a very young salesperson. Mm. Uh, when I was 18, 19, 20, 21, I was very believable because people trusted me because they didn't think I was some used car salesman or whatever. Yeah,
0: you weren't some seasoned Yeah, know, sales and I guy. and I
1: I think I, my approach was always straightforward with people and I was honest with them and treated them right, but it, it helped me I, I feel like in looking back on it I had an advantage being young because people trusted me. They didn't think I was trying to to scam them.
0: Yeah. And I wasn't. You didn't so. know enough to pull the wool. Yeah, over exactly. Your eyes. <laughs>
1: exactly. <laughs>
0: So what was your, what would you call your first real job? Was it in the hot tub industry? Gosh, I've been, I was just
1: talking to a friend about this recently. I've been working. My dad had businesses outside of hot tubs. I've been working since I was 11 or 12 years old. (laughs) Were those jobs? They were. What's your real job? It's hard to even say because I did all these other things. When my dad was in the boat business, he was trying to buy a company that made boats. I helped uh, a gel-coated mold needs to be waxed. So that the molds of the product pops off of it. I, I, when I was 13 or 14 years old, I was inside of anywhere from 20 to 30 foot boat hulls with a little thing, just waxing the mold so that the gel coater can get ready to come in and tape it off so that he can paint it off the boat. So it has all the stripes on it. I used to push the broom, my clean toilets. I manufactured hot tubs. I did all those things. So yeah. it's hard to say my first job. It goes back to when I was probably 12 or 13 years old working for my dad, but my first job in the hot tub business was helping sell retail and, and I worked in the factory. I ran the whole saw and put jets on there and plumbed them up and assembled them and water tested them and buffed them out and detailed them and delivered them. In high school, I drove a truck for my dad a lot of times on Friday nights overnight to Phoenix or to Nevada or up to the Bay Area delivering 10 or 15 hot tubs. I'd get a buddy to go with me and we'd go overnight and deliver them Saturday morning and come back Saturday night within 500 miles. We would do that and other manufacturers. That's how I knew we had friendly relationships. There was a fellow, Bill Holmes, that was advanced spa design out in Anaheim. And so I'd take a truck with spas on it and then stop at Bill's place. And they'd put three or four more on there. And then we would deliver them for them. Cause we were friendly with people back yeah. then. There was a point at time where industry got, we don't, we hate each other. We have to win and you have to lose. But back in the early days, the Bill Holmes and the Ron Clarks and my dad and others, they, we helped each other. Yeah. So yeah, I did, I did that, but that was a little bit later, but yeah, I don't know. My first real job was probably working in the hot tub business, doing retail and assembly.
0: Yeah. So people don't like to think about this, but do you remember what you would say was your biggest flop in your job? Something that just really did not go the way that you had intended?
1: Probably trying to help. I would say this, probably trying to help my family's business come out of a chapter 11. Okay. My dad's Hawkeye business filed chapter 11 in April of 87, five days before my wedding. Oh no. And that was my job too, was there. So we didn't know what our future was going to be. Yeah. But we worked really hard for a year to try to pull it out. Mm -hmm. And I think I was too young and naive to know that it wasn't gonna happen, but we tried. Mm -hmm. And my brother and my father were removed from the company. We brought in a turnaround specialist to do ops and, and finance, and I did sales and marketing. And if you have a minute, I just want to tell this quick. It was a bright eyed wake wake up sun call is (laughs) we bought from Hayward and I went to the Atlantic City show in January of 88 and I flew to New Jersey and met with Hayward before and then I drove down the, the, the parkway to Atlantic City. And I wanted to go in there and tell Bill Treen, who was the president, and Jay Jason, who was their credit manager, hey, this is what's going on, and we're trying to collect. We've got a c- couple people that might invest, and I was like 24 years old, t- you know, t- telling these seasoned business people all these stories about how great uh-huh, it was going to uh-huh. be. And Bill Treen, God bless him, he looked at me and he said, Mike, stop it. And I said, what? He goes, stop it. And I said, what do you mean? He goes... <laughs> Hey, son, there's no white knight that's going to ride up and save you. It's over, and you need to close this business. <laughs> and I'm getting ready to go to a trade show.
0: Oh, no. And so
1: I called the guy in California that I was working with, and I said, don't give me an answer, but I got a three-hour drive. Let me know what you think. And I got to Atlantic City and called him, and, he, and I said, I think we should close it down. He goes, I agree. So over the next couple of months, we wound it down. I don't know. Is that a flop? I think the flop was being naive to think – We could really pull it together. And as Bill Treen told me, he said, we wrote off your debt last year. Because I was like, hey, we'll pay you back if we keep the business going. He goes, yeah, we wrote your debt off last year. It's over. Now now you're making me spend good money after bad because Jay has to fly to California for the creditors meetings as part of the group. So it's making it worse. And it was just, it was an eye opener to me. And I think my expectation was we're going to do this and pull it off. Mm -hmm. And I had no chance of doing that. And I think the flop for me is the reality check of when you're young, you are naive. And young people don't want to hear that, but you have to have experiences to get there. And it doesn't mean you're not smart or that you're not doing a good job, but it woke me up to be, to recognize that I don't know everything. And as I'm younger and growing, I need to listen to people um, yeah. and take their advice.
0: That's a thing from, I feel like what we learn from these quote unquote failures is mm-hmm. that is what matters, right? Is what you take away from them and what you learn and how you grow. And so, yeah, that was an important lesson that you learned through that tough time so that's that's why I like to ask this question is because it's it's really revealing I feel like for the person and their business and what they're all about yeah yeah so what would you say was maybe the the best move you ever made your your biggest success or best idea oh oh
1: my I think my biggest move was coming to Watkins I had a really good job at Hayward I, I had no reason to leave but this was an incredible opportunity for me. And going there, I had no idea what it I was 30 years old. So I was like, okay, I can't make a mistake. If I do this for five years and I need to do something else, I'll be 35. And I, I thought highly of Watkins. And personally, I knew Steve for several years because I had been calling on him. But that that move changed my life. In And I won't go into it, but in, in more ways than just business and my career and finances, just a lot of personal things and... Also, the relationships that I've built over the last 30 years in this industry with customers and vendors and whatnot, that, that was a significant move for me. And at the time, it was a new job and a step up, next, next step in my career. But I didn't want to be the person that said, gosh, what if I would have taken that job with Watkins? Maybe I would have had a long career at Hayward. I don't know. I probably would have. But I didn't want to think back and go, what if? And I think that was a big move for me to overcome the fear of leaving something that you have that's good and balancing the what if I didn't and then always wondering uh, and possibly regretting, did I not make that right move? Mm-hmm. That was a psychological sort of battle that I had to overcome to come to Watkins. And uh, and it was the right decision, obviously, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, after 28 and a half years there.
0: It's weird to think about. Because we do stuff on the pool side as well. It's weird to think about if I was talking to you from Hayward and not from Watkins, but that might've been a possibility. (laughs) Yeah,
1: it could have. Yeah, absolutely could have.
0: So do you have a a favorite book, TV show, movie, podcast, something that you turn to either for entertainment or to relax or even just to learn and grow?
1: I'm going to introduce something that I don't know if it's okay to do or not, but it's spiritual. But, That's um, fine.
0: I, you, the number of people who have named the Bible are as I, I have is, a favorite high book. on this podcast. <laughs> yes,
1: I I have a favorite book and it is the Bible, and I've been reading it for almost thirty years, and it guided me in my career. I used the wisdom and the understanding of things that apply in decision making and how to treat people, even though I failed at times to live up to that, I would then acknowledge it and try to be tell people when I was wrong. But I I, I do read some books, but that I read that book every day. And I have for 30 years. And it has guided me in all aspects of my life. And has I, I can tell you, there were so many decisions I've had to make in, in my business career at Watkins. And that book guided me more more than anybody will ever know.
0: Yeah, I have to agree the the days where I don't get my little Bible study in the morning, I can tell Mm -hmm. that my my anxiety is a little higher that day
1: than the other days. I'm a different person if I don't do that. Yeah, but then seeking wisdom when you have to make tough decisions when you're going through recession periods and you're going through COVID periods and you're going through acquisitions and you're you're trying to decide what should we do and maybe you have to lay people off or you're hiring somebody new and I'm seeking wisdom from above to to feel like I'm getting some sort of confirmation and and managing difficult situations and how am I going to handle this and trying to find an equitable way to, to make all parties feel like they've been respected and heard. It, it's just a game changer for me. It was yeah. when it was introduced to me. And that's something that I was talking about earlier that changed my life before I came to Watkins and after Watkins, not for a podcast, but maybe some other time I'll share with you off, off the podcast. But my life changed dramatically at Watkins. I, I, I became a different person and it, and it guided me in my career. So that's the book I rely on. Every day it doesn't mean I there mean, aren't other good books out there, but yeah. Well,
0: it's a good one, Mike. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. And you're you're not even you're retired. You're not you're not required to do any of these things anymore. And but I do feel like this has been a long time coming. So thank you, thank you for coming on with us today and talking about the hot tub industry.
1: You're more than welcome, and I appreciate you asking. And I even though I'm not working, I love doing this kind of stuff. It's fun. <laughs> it's fun to reminisce and and talk about the good old days and how things were, but I think the good days are still better days ahead for sure for this industry. And I do appreciate what you're doing with Spot Retailer. And and I do listen to some of your podcasts and I don't get to all of them, but <laughs> I do appreciate what you guys do to represent specifically the hot tub business through Spot Retailer. It's awesome. I think well, you do a good work.
0: Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. Spa Retailer Podcast is a production of Spa Retailer Magazine. Let us know what you think by leaving a review or emailing us at podcast at spa Thanks for listening.